midweek Wednesday, and I appreciate you taking some time to join us this morning. I'm Evan Bray. Yesterday, we had a good conversation with you about this whole notion of hockey culture. We talked about the fact that five players from the 2018 Canadian World Junior Team charged with sexual assault from a case that dates back to 2018. And as a result, it's it's tipped the tables on a lot of things. And, and others, people are critical that it hasn't, actually. People critical of, for example, the NHL's response to this and really taking a very passive approach, saying these players have taken personal leave and will just let things play out, but not coming out and condemning the alleged actions of these players. And so it was a good discussion yesterday, I think, and we got into the notion of whether or not these are five people that made bad decisions, uh, are they bad people, or is it the sport that creates the problem? It was a good back and forth, lots of people weighing in. As I was preparing for that, there's a lot of reading that goes into research when you're putting together a topic like this. I came across a great article written by a former national sports columnist for Post Media, also did some writing for National Post over the years, Scott Stinson, Really, the, 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 well, I would say the, the topic of the column that he wrote is hockey culture won't change until the money goes away. And I was, uh, I was into this. I thought it was a great read and I thought, let's give Scott a call and see if we can get him on the show. And we do. We've got Scott Stinson on the phone from his office in Toronto today. Thanks for taking the call. Thanks for having me, Evan. A pleasure to be on. So, you know, my reaction, and I talked about this fairly openly yesterday when we had this broader discussion. I, I'm I am a guy that grew up loving hockey, playing hockey. I actually refed hockey for a number of years. Still follow it very closely. And so, while it's easy for me to condemn actions like sexual assault if they're committed by hockey players or whoever, I still find myself quite defensive of the game of hockey. Is that a natural reaction that you see in the work that you've done? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's quite common, especially obviously being in Canada where um, the sport is such a big part of a lot of people's lives from a young age, you know, whether they're playing in, in local ranks or whether they're taking their kids. And as you mentioned, you know, you do, whether you're volunteering or refereeing or all kinds of stuff, there's, there's, I think a natural reaction amongst a lot of people to be like, Hey, whoa, 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 let's not uh, throw the baby with the bathwater here. And I think that's totally fair. I don't think hockey is any, you know, more or less, flawed than other sports and so i i don't think we can lay the blame at hockey players as a group when stuff like this is alleged to have happened but but i do think it's also worth taking a step back and saying okay like have we do we have the right setup here is it the right framework um are we doing the right things when it comes to to training players and especially when you're training the best of the best to be elite players and i think that's where the canadian system has some flaws that we i think we pointed out or have pointed out at times in the past and you go "Mm, maybe this would be the catalyst for change and then six months eight months later nothing's really changed and the system is is just as it was Scott Stinson is our guest this morning, a national sports columnist. He's written on a, a bunch of different sports, but his recent article, Hockey Culture Won't Change Until the Money Goes Away, really got my attention. In the article, Scott, you talk about kids who show promise at the earliest age are funneled into a system that almost treats them like professionals. Why do you spot that as an issue? Yeah, 
it's funny. Um, I, I have a, a good friend here who who has a, a has had a daughter who now plays collegiately in the United States and has a son, a younger son who's who's you know playing I think AAA of some sort. And and we were chatting about this a while ago, and and he, he pointed out something which I I thought was the case, but it was interesting to hear from a parent of an actual hockey player in the system that like these kids do end up basically being treated almost like professionals from, you know, they might be eight years old and they're getting, people are fighting for their services and they're trying to manipulate their home address to make sure that they get on the best teams. You know, there's such an emphasis on winning and playing for the best teams and all that stuff. And, and, you know, playing for championships, even when kids are, are still in single digit of their age. And then that carries all the way through to, 12 and 13 and 14. And then you get into those, some of those, you know, cream of the crop are getting drafted by teams that might be somewhere else in their province entirely, might be in a different country. If you're playing and drafted by an American team, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways in which the system is set up to kind of treat these guys like they are pros, like they are kind of different than everyone else. And, and I think it's not that surprising that every now and then you get some, you know, behavioral issues that, that might be partly due to the fact that they haven't really lived normal lives for a long time and they were treated like they were different from a very young age. So I do wonder if, if part of those things, you know, that whole setup is the best situation to produce, you know, normally adjusted young men. And I think every time something like this story pops up, you go, I don't know, are you really that surprised that, that every now and then some stuff like this happens because um, the system is pretty strange when you when you take a step back and think about how it works. You know, another part of the topic that we had discussion that we had yesterday on this topic was people pointed to other sports and saying, you know, look at the NFL, look at the NBA, look at the other professional sports. They have their problems as well. So this isn't unique to hockey. Do you think we're just more aware of it because of how important hockey is to us in Canada? For sure. And, and, you know, this particular case that, that, that was the impetus for this, the stories and what we're talking about was obviously a huge deal. The world juniors are, as you know, like one of the biggest televised sports events of the year, which is, you know, in itself kind of crazy when you, when you think about what we're dealing with here, a lot of players who won't ever become, you know, high level professionals, but that's become such a televised event and it's a big deal. And, and that's why in Canada in particular, we pay attention to it. But, you know, I, I just throw back also to Evan, that you, you mentioned those other sports and they do have their problems and there are flaws with the systems that develop professionals in basketball or football. But interestingly, that that's really changing recently. You know, there was, there was a court case that basically meant that uh, college students college athletes were able to get paid now for their name and image and likeness. And I think that's fundamentally changed the way what you'll see college sports being in the coming years. And a lot of people would argue for the better, you know, like essentially the NCAA experiment experienced the same thing that the major junior hockey system does in Canada, which is take really good athletes and make them play for free and now you're seeing in the NCAA, those players can actually get paid. I'll be curious to see if, if the CHL is able to, you know, avoid that um, outcome because they've resisted paying these players and, and treating them as, as professionals for a long time. So we'll see what happens.
Chatting today with Scott Stinson, national sports columnist, uh, done work for the National Post Media News. So, Scott, uh, in your article, you talk about, you give examples of NHL organizations that have had their share of problems. We know recently, for example, Chicago went through um, a bit of a disaster in terms of how it mishandled an abuse case and people lost jobs over that. Uh, We've seen coaches that have been fired in one city, but then rehired in others. Do you see these NHL incidents and what is going on with Hockey Canada as different, or is it just all part of the same discussion? Seems like it's part of the same discussion to me, Evan. I mean, so much of, of what you come back to in, in these things um, is, well, in, in the Hockey Canada specifically, you know, the, the reason there, were, there was a lot of outrage, aside from the alleged criminal behavior, was the fact that the, the men in charge were kind of quick to just not really investigate it. You know, they were very happy to just let it all drop by the wayside and not force the issue. And, and sort of famously, they were in front of a parliamentary committee, uh, you know, a year ago now, 18 months ago maybe, and, and said they didn't even know who the players involved were allegedly. And, you know, you're just going, what? So... And I think some of the stuff that you see up in the NHL ranks is the same. Like, it's just a culture of focused on winning, uh, a little bit of boys will be boys, you know, old-timey hockey men. And it just seems like there's lots of instances where the first instinct of the people in positions of leadership and responsibility is to kind of turn a blind eye to misbehavior or to do things that are, you know, really not acceptable when it comes to like uh, abuse of, of players or improper language or those kind of things. And, and I, I'll be honest with you, Evan, every time I read about stuff like this, I, you do hear from readers who say, ah, like, you know, ah, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and there should be like, this is the way it's always been. And uh, that's what good old hockey is about. And you know, I don't really think it has to be. I think I think we're sort of able to realize that uh, that just because the way it was done in the '70s was the way it was done in the '70s doesn't mean that's the way we need to approach it in the 2020s. Yesterday, when we had this discussion, people were phoning in and texting in, and we, you know, we got to the point where we were talking about, okay, how do we, how do we actually change this? What needs to happen? And lots of discussion about, you know, important conversations between parents and their children, important conversations between coaches and players. But we're talking about Saskatchewan teams, under 11 teams, you know, different levels of what I would call minor hockey, maybe even senior hockey in our province. But your article, you really draw a distinction between what I would call regular hockey that we watch on a daily basis in our province and elite levels of hockey and the money that's attached to it. Can you help us understand where you're drawing the line and and how you see that impacting this discussion? Yeah, I think it's it's the idea of the the fact that there are even in like relatively young levels. I, I am, I'll just speak in the situation that I know the best, which is in Greater Toronto. And you know there are teams that are effectively professional ish franchises that can be bought and sold, and they have you know owners and uh, they operate as other professional teams. They recruit players from other parts of the city. They sometimes do that um, nefariously by, as I mentioned, you know, putting a home address that's not really the right home address, all these kind of things. And, like, 
that kind of behavior just does not seem conducive to well-adjusted young athletes to me. Like you should not be treating these people that way at that age. And, and the tendency to sort of go in that direction from young ages, I, I think is problematic. And I think, I think there's lots of evidence, especially in other sports that you can still turn out really good professional athletes, even if they're not focused on competing at the highest high levels at really young ages. I mean, we've, I'm sure you've talked about it before, but there used to be a time where kids were encouraged to play all kinds of different sports and, and get as well-rounded and athletic experience as they could. And then eventually focus on whatever they happen to be best at later. And that way that we've got into not just, uh, you know, competing when you're 10 and nine and eight, but, but going to, you know, power skating schools and, and, you know, summer camp that I was all about developing a better shot. Like this stuff all just seems a bit much to me at a young age. And I think that the sport would be better served by, by letting it be something, a game that is played for as long as it makes sense for, for kids. And then maybe worrying about professional development or a professional pathway when they get into their mid teens or later. Scott Stinson is my guest. If you want to check out the article, it's called Hockey Culture Won't Change Until the Money Goes Away. So part of being the benefit of being the host of a show like this is I can just change topics on a dime, and I'm going to do that with you, Scott. So while I've got you, you write a lot about golf. I'm a big fan of watching golf, PGA. I follow the PGA Tour. Um, in a nutshell, in the little bit of time we have left, your thoughts on how the PGA Tour is being affected by the Live Golf Tour and where you see this ending. Well, where I see it ending, I mean, who knows? It's so strange the way we're in this this intermediate period where Live is progressing and yet they're also apparently in talks with the PGA Tour about investing in that. So, you know, why they would do both makes no sense to me other than the fact that they're the Saudis and they have the bottomless pit of money to throw at whatever um, subject they want. So so there's that. I, I, think, I think that obviously the biggest problem with Liv is that people just don't seem to care about it. And, and I, I know that's anecdotal, but I've I've yet to ever hear anybody sort of in the wild talk about a live tournament or even acknowledge that they know when they are or what channels they're on. Or You can count you know. me in on that discussion because I don't. <laughs> I don't follow it. Yeah, like nobody does. And, and they don't have a TV deal in on like a major broadcaster. So it's been very successful in terms of making a small number of golfers extraordinarily wealthy, but it hasn't been successful in becoming a sport that anybody in North America anyway, and, and I think mostly in Europe, really cares about. So to me, that's the big transition. Can they ever get anyone to care, or are they going to sort of realize after three or four years that this hasn't accomplished what they hope to and that they've spent billions of dollars for no real gain other than, you know, drawing some attention to them and, as I said, making a bunch of golfers rich. So, so I don't know. I think I think it'll be really interesting to see how the next season unfolds. Um, the fact that live players don't have world ranking points is a massive problem for them because, as you know, like basically you have to win a major to guarantee your you'll make the field because their their world rankings are plummeting otherwise because the live events don't grant them. So I think we'll have to see. I think the 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 big question is what becomes of these negotiations with 
the Saudi money people and the PGA Tour. And if they end up striking some sort of deal, I don't know. I just got to think that means that Liv's days are numbered because they're going to say, well, why would we fund this other thing if we're also funding the thing that it competes directly with? So Thanks for obliging me. Thanks. I appreciate that, Scott. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. I appreciate your thoughts on this. My pleasure, Evan. Have a good one. Scott Stinson, national sports columnist who... Uh, has again written a great article. Hockey culture won't change until the money goes away. Uh, check it out. You can find it online. It's uh, it's a good read. You're listening to 980 CJME and 650 CKOM. Well, good Wednesday morning. Thanks so much for joining us. By the way, have you checked your eggs? Big recall on egg salmonella found in four different brands: Compliments, Harmon, Star Egg, and No Name. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency has basically said. They may look normal, they may smell normal, but the chances are they could contain salmonella. And as a result, you're being encouraged to either throw them out or take them back to the store for a discount. On Monday, holiday Monday, I heard a couple of reports. People were literally lined up out the door of a couple of stores with cartons of eggs in their hand. Meanwhile, yesterday I stopped at the store on my way home at the end of the day and was in line behind a lady who was arguing with the teller her eggs weren't of one of those four brands, and yet she wanted a refund for her eggs. So, so there was a little bit of back and forth there. But uh, you can go online and check it out. But it's basically certain brands of the compliments, Harmon, Star Egg, and No Name that have been found to potentially contain salmonella. You can return them for a refund or, uh, of course, just throw them out if you want to do that as well. Well, lots of back and forth in the teacher's world between the teachers and the province. Some people are waving a flag saying there's unfair labor practices happening. We've got a expert who says it may not be, but it's walking pretty close to the line. We're going to talk with a political studies professor when we come back right here on 650 CKOM and 980 CJME.